Hello and welcome to the Strange Tales podcast presented by me your host Winston R. Douglas. This week we take a look at music and one of the most successful rock bands that is Pink Floyd. They were distinguished for their extended compositions, sonic experimentation, philosophical lyrics and elaborate live shows, and became a leading band of the progressive rock genre, cited by some as the greatest progressive rock band of all time. Pink Floyd were founded by Sid Barrett, Nick Mason, Roger Waters, and Richard Wright. Under Barrett's leadership, they released two charting singles and the successful debut album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn in 1967. Guitarist and vocalist David Gilmour joined in December 1967. Barrett left in April 1968 due to deteriorating mental health. Waters became the primary lyricist and thematic leader, devising the concepts behind the band's peak of critical and commercial success with the albums The Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, Animals, and The Wall. Okay let's get into today's strange tale. Roger Waters and Nick Mason met while studying architecture at the London Polytechnic at Regent Street. They first played music together in a group formed by Keith Noble and Clive Metcalf with Noble's sister Sheila. Richard Wright, a fellow architecture student, joined later that year, and the group became a sextet, Sigma Six. Waters played lead guitar, Mason drums, and Wright rhythm guitar. The band performed at private functions and rehearsed in a tea room in the basement of the Regent Street Polytechnic. They performed songs by the searchers and material written by their manager and songwriter, fellow student Ken Chapman. In September 1963, Waters and Mason moved into a flat at 39 Stanhope Gardens near Crouch End in London, owned by Mike Leonard, a part-time tutor at the nearby Hornsey College of Art, and the Regent Street Polytechnic. Mason moved out after the 1964 academic year, and guitarist Bob Close moved in during September 1964, prompting Waters, switch to bass. Sigma Six went through several names, including the Megadeths, the Abdabs and the Screaming Abdabs, Leonard's Lodgers, and the Spectrum Five, before settling on the T-Set. In 1964, as Metcalf and Noble left to form their own band, Guitarist Sid Barrett joined Close and Waters at Stanhope Gardens. Barrett, two years younger, had moved to London in 1962 to study at the Camberwell College of Arts. Waters and Barrett were childhood friends, Waters had often visited Barrett and watched him play guitar at Barrett's mother's house. Mason said about Barrett, in a period when everyone was being cool in a very adolescent, self-conscious way, Sid was unfashionably outgoing, my enduring memory of our first encounter is the fact that he bothered to come up and introduce himself to me. Noble and Metcalf left the tea set in late 1963, and Close introduced the band to singer Chris Dennis, a technician with the Royal Air Force. In December 1964, they secured their first recording time, at a studio in West Hampstead, through one of Wright's friends, who let them use some downtime free. Wright, who was taking a break from his studies, did not participate in the session. 
When the RAF assigned Dennis a post in Bahrain in early 1965, Barrett became the band's front man. Later that year, they became the resident band at the Countdown Club near Kensington High Street in London, where from late night until early morning they played three sets of 90 minutes each. During this period, spurred by the group's need to extend their sets to minimize song repetition, the band realized that songs could be extended with lengthy solos, wrote Mason. After pressure from his parents and advice from his college tutors, Close quit the band in mid-1965 and Barrett took over lead guitar. The group first referred to themselves as the Pink Floyd sound in late 1965. Barrett created the name on the spur of the moment when he discovered that another band, also called the T-Set, were to perform at one of their gigs. The name is derived from the given names of two blues musicians whose Piedmont blues records Barrett had in his collection, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council. By 1966, the group's repertoire consisted mainly of rhythm and blues songs and they had begun to receive paid bookings, including a performance at the Marquis Club in December 1966, where Peter Jenner, a lecturer at the London School of Economics, noticed them. Jenner was impressed by the sonic effects Barrett and Wright created, and with his business partner and friend Andrew King became their manager. The pair had little experience in the music industry, and used King's inheritance to set up Black Hill Enterprises, purchasing about £1,000 worth of new instruments and equipment for the band. It was around this time that Jenner suggested they drop the sound part of their band name, thus becoming the Pink Floyd. Under Jenner and King's guidance, the group became part of London's underground music scene, playing at venues including All Saints Hall and The Marquee. While performing at the Countdown Club, the band had experimented with long instrumental excursions, and they began to expand them with rudimentary but effective light shows, projected by colored slides and domestic lights. Jenner and King's social connections helped gain the band prominent coverage in the Financial Times and an article in the Sunday Times which stated, at the launching of the new magazine IT the other night a pop group called the Pink Floyd played throbbing music while a series of bizarre colored shapes flashed on a huge screen behind them, apparently very psychedelic. In 1966, the band strengthened their business relationship with Black Hill Enterprises, becoming equal partners with Jenner and King and the band members each holding a one-sixth share. By late 1966, their set included fewer Randby standards and more Barrett originals, many of which would be included on their first album. While they had significantly increased the frequency of their performances, the band was still not widely accepted. Following a performance at a Catholic youth club, the owner refused to pay them, claiming that their performance was not music. When their management filed suit in a small claims court against the owner of the youth organization, a local magistrate upheld the owner's decision. The band was much better received at the UFO club in London, where they began to build a fan base. In 1967, Pink Floyd began to attract the attention of the music industry. 
While in negotiations with record companies, IT co-founder and UFO club manager Joe Boyd and Pink Floyd's booking agent. Brian Morrison arranged and funded a recording session at Sound Techniques in West Hampstead. Three days later, Pink Floyd signed with Emmy, receiving a £5,000 advance. Emmy released the band's first single, Arnold Lane, with the B-side Candy and a Current Bun, on 10 March 1967 on its Columbia label. Both tracks were recorded on 29 January 1967. Arnold Lane's references to cross-dressing led to a ban by several radio stations, however, creative manipulation by the retailers who supplied sales figures to the music business meant that the single peaked in the UK at number 20. Emmy released Pink Floyd's second single, See Emily Play, on 16 June 1967. It fared slightly better than Arnold Lane, peaking at number 6 in the UK. The band performed on the BBC's Look of the Week, where Waters and Barrett, Erudite and Engaging, faced tough questioning from Hans Keller. They appeared on the BBC's Top of the Pops, a popular program that controversially required artists to mime their singing and playing. Though Pink Floyd returned for two more performances, by the third, Barrett had begun to unravel, and around this time the band first noticed significant changes in his behavior. By early 1967, he was regularly using LSD, and Mason described him as completely distanced from everything going on. The Piper at the Gates of Dawn Morrison and Emmy producer Norman Smith negotiated Pink Floyd's first recording contract. As part of the deal, the band agreed to record their first album at Emmy Studios in London. Mason recalled that the sessions were trouble-free. Smith disagreed, stating that Barrett was unresponsive to his suggestions and constructive criticism. Emmy released The Piper at the Gates of Dawn in August 1967. The album peaked at number 6, spending 14 weeks on the UK charts. One month later, it was released under the Tower Records label. Pink Floyd continued to draw large crowds at the UFO club. However, Barrett's mental breakdown was by then causing serious concern. The group initially hoped that his erratic behavior would be a passing phase, but some were less optimistic, including Jenna and his assistant, June Child, who commented, I found, Barrett, in the dressing room, and he was so gone. Roger Waters and I got him on his feet, and, we got him out to the stage, the band started to play and Sid just stood there. He had his guitar around his neck and his arms just hanging down. Forced to cancel Pink Floyd's appearance at the prestigious National Jazz and Blues Festival, as well as several other shows, King informed the music press that Barrett was suffering from nervous exhaustion. Waters arranged a meeting with psychiatrist R.D. Lang, and though Waters personally drove Barrett to the appointment, Barrett refused to come out of the car. A stay in Formentera with Sam Hutt, a doctor well established in the underground music scene, led to no visible improvement. The band followed a few concert dates in Europe during September with their first tour of the US in October. As the US tour went on, Barrett's condition grew steadily worse. During appearances on the Dick Clark and Pat Boone shows in November, 
Barrett confounded his hosts by giving terse answers to questions, or not responding at all, and staring into space. He refused to move his lips when it came time to mime see Emily play on Boone's show. After these embarrassing episodes, King ended their US visit, and immediately sent them home to London. Soon after their return, they supported Jimi Hendrix during a tour of England, however, Barrett's depression worsened as the tour continued. In December 1967, reaching a crisis point with Barrett, Pink Floyd added guitarist David Gilmour as the fifth member. Gilmour already knew Barrett, having studied with him at Cambridge Tech in the early 1960s. The two had performed at lunchtimes together with guitars and harmonicas, and later hitchhiked and busked their way around the south of France. In 1965, while a member of Joker's Wild, Gilmore had watched the tea set. Morrison's assistant, Steve O'Rourke, set Gilmore up in a room at O'Rourke's house with a salary of £30 per week, and in January 1968, Black Hill Enterprises announced Gilmore as the band's newest member, intending to continue with Barrett as a non-performing songwriter. According to Jenner, the group planned that Gilmore would cover for Barrett's eccentricities. When this proved unworkable, Sid was just going to write. Just to try to keep him involved. In an expression of his frustration, Barrett, who was expected to write additional hit singles to follow up Arnold Lane and see Emily play, instead introduced Have You Got It Yet? to the band, intentionally changing the structure on each performance so as to make the song impossible to follow and learn. In a January 1968 photo shoot of the five-man Pink Floyd, the photographs show Barrett looking detached from the others, staring into the distance. Working with Barrett eventually proved too difficult, and matters came to a conclusion in January while en route to a performance in Southampton when a band member asked if they should collect Barrett. According to Gilmore, the answer was nah, let's not bother, signaling the end of Barrett's tenure with Pink Floyd. Waters later said, he was our friend, but most of the time we now wanted to strangle him. In early March 1968, Pink Floyd met with business partners Jenna and King to discuss the band's future, Barrett agreed to leave. Jenna and King believed Barrett was the creative genius of the band, and decided to represent him and end their relationship with Pink Floyd. Morrison sold his business to NEMS Enterprises, and O'Rourke became the band's personal manager. Blackhill announced Barrett's departure on 6 April 1968. After Barrett's departure, the burden of lyrical composition and creative direction fell mostly on Waters. Initially, Gilmore mimed to Barrett's voice on the group's European TV appearances, however, while playing on the university circuit, they avoided Barrett's songs in favor of Waters and write material such as It Would Be So Nice and Careful With That Axe, Eugene. In 1968, Pink Floyd returned to Abbey Road Studios to record their second album, A Saucerful of Secrets. The album included Barrett's final contribution to their discography, Jug Band Blues. Waters began to develop his own songwriting, contributing Set the Controls for the Heart of the Sun, Let There Be More Light and Corporal Clegg. 
write composed seesaw and remember a day. Norman Smith encouraged them to self-produce their music, and they recorded demos of new material at their houses. With Smith's instruction at Abbey Road, they learn how to use the recording studio to realize their artistic vision. However, Smith remained unconvinced by their music, and when Mason struggled to perform his drum part on Remember a Day, Smith stepped in as his replacement. Wright recalled Smith's attitude about the sessions, Norman gave up on the second album, and he was forever saying things like, you can't do 20 minutes of this ridiculous noise. As neither Waters nor Mason could read music, to illustrate the structure of the album's title track, they invented their own system of notation. Gilmore later described their method as looking like an architectural diagram. Released in June 1968, the album featured a psychedelic cover designed by Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell of Hypnosis. The first of several Pink Floyd album covers designed by Hypnosis, it was the second time that Emmy permitted one of their groups to contract designers for an album jacket. The release peaked at number 9, spending 11 weeks on the UK chart. Record Mirror gave the album an overall favorable review, but urged listeners to forget it as background music to a party. John Peel described a live performance of the title track as like a religious experience, while Enemy described the song as long and boring, with little to warrant its monotonous direction. On the day after the album's UK release, Pink Floyd performed at the first ever free concert in Hyde Park. In July 1968, they returned to the US for a second visit. Accompanied by The Soft Machine and The Who, it marked Pink Floyd's first significant tour. In December of that year, they released Point Me at the Sky. Considered one of the UK's first psychedelic music groups, Pink Floyd began their career at the vanguard of London's underground music scene, appearing at UFO Club and Middle Earth Club. According to Rolling Stone, by 1967, they had developed an unmistakably psychedelic sound, performing long, loud suite-like compositions that touched on hard rock, blues, country, folk, and electronic music. Released in 1968, the song Careful With That Axe, Eugene helped galvanize their reputation as an art rock group. Other genres attributed to the band are space rock, experimental rock, acid rock, experimental pop, while under Barrett, psychedelic pop, and psychedelic rock. O'Neill Serber comments on the music of Pink Floyd. Rarely will you find Floyd dishing up catchy hooks, tunes short enough for airplay, or predictable three-chord blues progressions, and never will you find them spending much time on the usual pop album of romance, partying, or self-hype. Their sonic universe is expansive, intense, and challenging, where most other bands neatly fit the songs to the music, the two forming a sort of autonomous and seamless whole complete with memorable hooks, Pink Floyd tends to set lyrics within a broader soundscape that often seems to have a life of its own. Pink Floyd employs extended, standalone instrumentals which are never mere vehicles for showing off virtuoso but are planned and integral parts of the performance. Amagama represented a departure from their previous work. 
Released as a double LP on EMI's Harvest label, the first two sides contained live performances recorded at Manchester College of Commerce and Mothers, a club in Birmingham. The second LP contained a single experimental contribution from each band member. Umagama was released in November 1969 and received positive reviews. The album peaked at number 5, spending 21 weeks on the UK chart. In October 1970, Pink Floyd released Atom Heart Mother. An early version premiered in England in mid-January, but disagreements over the mix prompted the hiring of Ron Giesen to work out the sound problems. Giesen worked to improve the score, but with little creative input from the band, production was troublesome. Giesen eventually completed the project with the aid of John Aldis, who was the director of the choir hired to perform on the record. Smith earned an executive producer credit, and the album marked his final official contribution to the band's discography. Gilmore said it was a neat way of saying that he didn't do anything. Waters was critical of Atom Heart Mother, claiming that he would prefer if it were thrown into the dustbin, and never listened to by anyone ever again. Gilmore, was equally dismissive of the album and once described it as a load of rubbish, stating, I think we were scraping the barrel a bit at that period. Pink Floyd's first number one album, Atom Heart Mother was hugely successful in Britain, spending 18 weeks on the UK chart. It premiered at the Bath Festival on the 27th of June 1970. Pink Floyd toured extensively across America and Europe in 1970. In 1971, Pink Floyd took second place in a reader's poll, in Melody Maker, and for the first time were making a profit. Mason and Wright became fathers and bought homes in London while Gilmore, still single, moved to a 19th century farm in Essex. Waters installed a home recording studio at his house in Islington in a converted tool shed at the back of his garden. In January 1971, upon their return from touring Atom Heart, Mother, Pink Floyd began working on new material. Lacking a central theme, they attempted several unproductive experiments. Engineer John Leckie described the sessions as often beginning in the afternoon and ending early the next morning, during which time nothing would get, accomplished. There was no record company contact whatsoever, except when their label manager would show up now and again with a couple of bottles of wine and a couple of joints. The band spent long periods working on basic sounds, or a guitar riff. They also spent several days at Air Studios, attempting to create music using a variety of household objects, a project which would be revisited between the dark side of the moon and wish you were here. Released in October 1971, Medal not only confirms lead guitarist David Gilmour's emergence as a real shaping force with the group, it states forcefully and accurately that the group is well into the growth track again, wrote Jean Charles Costa of Rolling Stone. Enemy called Medal an exceptionally good album, singling out Echoes as the zenith which the Floyd have been striving for. However, melody makers Michael Watts found it underwhelming, calling the album a soundtrack to a non-existent movie, and shrugging off Pink Floyd as so much sound and fury, 
signifying nothing. Metal is a transitional album, between the Barrett-influenced group of the late 1960s and the emerging Pink Floyd. The LP peaked at number 3, spending 82 weeks on the UK chart. After releasing their sixth studio album Metal, thanks to technological advancements, Pink Floyd incorporated more experimental music compared to their previous albums. Some band members noted that when Sid Barrett was replaced with David Gilmour, the Pink Floyd sound became more soundscapes than songs and were making more thematic music where there would be a continuous narrative which then began their format of making concept albums. Symbolically, the concept on some of Pink Floyd's albums, The Wall and The Dark Side of the Moon in particular, are presented on the album cover. With The Dark Side of the Moon, Storm Thorgerson had designed 10 different album covers for all the band members to agree on what the album cover should be. And all the band members quickly unanimously agreed, on the iconic light passing through the prism design. Hugh Fielder's book on the aesthetic of Pink Floyd explores the cultural influence the band had with its iconic album cover which coincides with the concept of the album. With the dark side of the moon, the left side of the album cover has a singular white light beaming towards the triangle. This signifies side A of the album because the left-hand side has no color, this represents the darker part of the album that explores paranoia, madness and death which correlates with the first five tracks on side A. Throughout their career, Pink Floyd experimented with their sound. Their second single, See Emily Play premiered at the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London, on the 12th of May 1967. During the performance, the group first used an early quadraphonic device called an azimuth coordinator. The device enabled the controller, usually right, to manipulate the band's amplified sound, combined with recorded tapes, projecting the sounds 270 degrees around a venue, achieving a sonic swirling effect. In 1972, they purchased a custom-built PA which featured an upgraded 4-channel, 360-degree system. Waters experimented with the VCS-3 synthesizer on Pink Floyd pieces such as On the Run, Welcome to the Machine, and In the Flesh. He used a Binson Echorec 2 delay effect on his bass guitar track for one of these days. Pink Floyd used innovative sound effects and state-of-the-art audio recording technology during the recording of the final cut. Mason's contributions to the album were almost entirely limited to work with the experimental holophonic system, an audio processing technique used, to simulate a three-dimensional effect. The system used a conventional stereotape to produce an effect that seemed to move the sound around the listener's head when they were wearing headphones. The process enabled an engineer to simulate moving the sound to behind, above or beside the listener's ears. The Dark Side of the Moon, 1973 Pink Floyd recorded The Dark Side of the Moon, between May 1972 and January 1973 with Emmy staff engineer Alan Parsons at Abbey Road. The title is an allusion to lunacy rather than astronomy. The band had composed and refined the material while touring the UK, Japan, North America, and Europe. Producer Chris Thomas assisted Parsons. Hypnosis designed the packaging, which included George Hardy's iconic refracting prism design on the cover. 
Forgerson's cover features a beam of white light, representing unity, passing through a prism, which represents society. The refracted beam of colored light symbolizes unity diffracted, leaving an absence of unity. Waters is the sole author of the lyrics. Throughout March 1973, The Dark Side of the Moon featured as part of Pink Floyd's US tour. The album is one of the most commercially successful rock albums of all time, a US number one, it remained on the Billboard Top LPs and Tape chart for more than 14 years during the 1970s and 1980s, selling more than 45 million copies worldwide. In Britain, the album peaked at number two, spending 364 weeks on the UK chart. The Dark Side of the Moon is the world's third best-selling album, and the 21st best-selling album of all time in the US. The success of the album brought enormous wealth to the members of Pink Floyd. Waters and Wright bought large country houses while Mason became a collector of expensive cars. Disenchanted with their US record company, Capitol Records, Pink Floyd and O'Rourke negotiated a new contract with Columbia Records, who gave them a reported advance of $1 million equivalent to $5,247,638 in 2020 dollars. In Europe, they continued to be represented by Harvest Records. Waters' lyrics to The Dark Side of the Moon dealt with the pressures of modern life, and how those pressures can sometimes cause insanity. He viewed the album's explication of mental illness as illuminating a universal condition. However, Waters also wanted the album to communicate positivity, calling it an exhortation, to embrace the positive and reject the negative. Reich described the wars less about the experience of madness than the habits, institutions, and social structures that create or cause madness. The wall's protagonist, Pink, is unable to deal with the circumstances of his life, and overcome by feelings of guilt, slowly closes himself off from the outside world inside a barrier of his own making. After he completes his estrangement from the world, Pink realizes that he is crazy, over the rainbow. He then considers the possibility that his condition may be his own fault, have I been guilty all this time? Realizing his greatest fear, Pink believes that he has let everyone down, his overbearing mother wisely choosing to smother him, the teachers rightly criticizing his poetic aspirations, and his wife justified in leaving him. He then stands trial for showing feelings of an almost human nature, further exacerbating his alienation of species being. As with the writings of philosopher Michel Foucault, Waters' lyrics suggest Pink's insanity is a product of modern life, the elements of which, custom, codependencies, and psychopathologies, contribute to his angst, according to Reich. Pink Floyd also composed several film scores, starting in 1968, with The Committee. In 1969, they recorded the score for Barbet Schroeder's film Moore. The soundtrack proved beneficial. Not only did it pay well but, along with a saucer full of secrets, the material they created became part of their live shows for some time thereafter. 
while composing the soundtrack for director Michelangelo Antonioni's film Zabriskie Point, the band stayed at a luxury hotel in Rome for almost a month. Waters claimed that, without Antonioni's constant changes to the music, they would have completed the work in less than a week. Eventually he used only three of their recordings. One of the pieces turned down by Antonioni, called The Violent Sequence, later became Us and Them, included on 1973's The Dark Side of the Moon. In 1971, the band again worked with Schroeder on the film La Vallée, for which they released a soundtrack album called Obscured by Clouds. They composed the material in about a week at the Chateau de Rouville near Paris, and upon its release, it became Pink Floyd's first album to break into the top 50 on the US Billboard chart. After a tour of the UK performing Dark Side, Pink Floyd returned to the studio in January 1975 and began work on their ninth studio album, Wish You Were Here. Parsons declined an offer to continue working with them, becoming successful in his own right with the Alan Parsons Project, and so the band turned to Brian Humphreys. Initially, they found it difficult to compose new material, the success of the dark side of the moon had left Pink Floyd physically, and emotionally drained. Wright later described these early sessions as falling within a difficult period and Waters found them tortuous. Gilmore, was more interested in improving the band's existing material. Mason's failing marriage left him in a general malaise and with a sense of apathy, both of which interfered with his drumming. Despite the lack of creative direction, Waters began to visualize a new concept after several weeks. During 1974, Pink Floyd had sketched out three original compositions and had performed them at a series of concerts in Europe. These compositions became the starting point for a new album whose opening four-note guitar phrase, composed purely by chance by Gilmore, reminded Waters of Barrett. The songs provided a fitting summary of the rise and fall of their former bandmate. Waters commented, because I wanted to get as close as possible to what I felt, that, indefinable, inevitable melancholy about the disappearance of Sid. While Pink Floyd were working on the album, Barrett made an impromptu visit to the studio. Ferguson recalled that he sat round and talked for a bit, but he wasn't really there. He had changed significantly in appearance, so much so that the band did not initially recognize him. Waters was reportedly deeply upset by the experience. Most of Wish You Were Here premiered on 5 July 1975, at an open-air music festival at Nebworth. Released in September, it reached number one in both the UK and the US. During the late 1960s, the press labeled Pink Floyd's music psychedelic pop, progressive pop and progressive rock, they gained a following as a psychedelic pop group. In 1968, Wright said, it's hard to see why we were cast as the first British psychedelic group. We never saw ourselves that way, we realized that we were, after all, only playing for fun, tied to no particular form of music, we could do whatever we wanted, the emphasis, is, firmly on spontaneity and improvisation. Waters, said later. There wasn't anything grand about it. 
We were laughable. We were useless. We couldn't play at all so we had to do something stupid and experimental, Sid was a genius, but I wouldn't want to go back to playing Interstellar Overdrive for hours and hours. Unconstrained by conventional pop formats, Pink Floyd were innovators of progressive rock during the 1970s and ambient music during the 1980s. Marked by Waters' philosophical lyrics, Rolling Stone described Pink Floyd as purveyors of a distinctively dark vision. Author Jerry O'Neill Serber wrote, Their interests are truth and illusion, life and death, time and space, causality and chance, compassion and indifference. Waters identified empathy as a central theme in the lyrics of Pink Floyd. Author George Reich described Medal's psychedelic opus, Echoes, as built around the core idea of genuine communication, sympathy, and collaboration with others. Despite having been labeled the gloomiest man in rock, author Dina Weinstein described Waters as an existentialist, dismissing the unfavorable moniker as the result of misinterpretation by music critics. In 1975, Pink Floyd bought a three-story group of church halls at 35 Britannia Row in Islington, and began converting them into a recording studio and storage space. In 1976, they recorded their tenth album, Animals, in their newly finished, 24-track studio. The album concept originated with Waters, loosely based on George Orwell's political fable Animal Farm. The lyrics describe different classes of society as dogs, pigs, and sheep. Hypnosis received credit for the packaging. However, Waters designed the final concept, choosing an image of the aging Battersea power station, over which they superimposed an image of a pig. The division of royalties was a source of conflict between band members, who earned royalties on a per-song basis. Although Gilmore was largely responsible for dogs, which took up almost the entire first side of the album, he received less than Waters, who contributed the much shorter two-part Pigs on the Wing. Wright commented, it was partly my fault because I didn't push my material but Dave did have something to offer, and only managed to get a couple of things on there. Mason recalled, Roger was in full flow of the ideas, but he was really keeping Dave down, and frustrating him deliberately. Gilmore, distracted by the birth of his first child, contributed little else toward the album. Similarly, neither Mason nor Wright contributed much toward animals. Wright had marital problems, and his relationship with Waters was also suffering. Animals was the first Pink Floyd album with no writing credit for Wright, who said. This was when Roger really started to believe that he was the sole writer for the band, that it was only because of him that, we, were still going, when he started to develop his ego trips, the person he would have his conflicts with would be me. Thank you all so much for listening. I really hope that you enjoyed today's strange tale. If you did please smash that gorgeous like button, and subscribe so that you will be notified to future shows. Also if you could write a 5 star review that would really help us get the word out, so other people can enjoy the podcast as well. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, 
and YouTube at Strange Tales Pod. Or you can message me at strangetalespod at gmail.com, with feedback or ideas on future shows. If you would like to support the podcast you can do so through Patreon, go to patreon.com forward slash strangetalespod. Where we have plans from as little as 3 US dollars a month and you can opt out anytime. Any help is much appreciated. This is me your host Winston R. Douglas signing out for now. Thanks again hope to see you again soon.